0: Our text for today is from our gospel reading from John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. I want you to imagine being Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's your first opportunity to show the world who you are and what you are all about, and you are omnipotent and all-powerful, what would you do? What would you do with all of that unlimited power to show the world who you are and what you were all about? Would you heal the sick? Would you feed thousands of hungry people? Would you maybe raise the dead? Would you maybe preach or teach in, a, in, in such a supernatural, powerful way that thousands of people were converted? What would you do, very first thing to show the world who you were and what you were all about where Jesus didn't do any of those things? He didn't heal the sick. He didn't feed the poor. Didn't raise the dead. No, Jesus, as his very first step into the public ministry, showing the world who he was, what he was all about, omnipotent in power. What did he do? He took a whole bunch of water and he transformed it into a whole lot of wine for a party. Now, why did Jesus do that? Well, verse 11 of our text gives us an insight into why he would do that. It actually shows us the result of doing that. It says this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed. In him. Jesus here is manifesting, he has manifested his glory, that is, he is revealing something of his divine nature, that he is the son of God, that he is God in human flesh, dwelling amongst us. And I suppose here, water into wine, we see something of his godly divine power over the physical world, over the physical creation. He changes the molecules of water into the molecules of wine. But certainly he could have done a lot more than that. For heaven's sake, this is the one who walked on water and calmed a raging storm. He has transformed water into wine at a party at this celebration because he's manifesting his glory. He's showing us something of his divinity. He's showing us in this account, in this miracle, the first of his miracles, something of who God is. And there's three things that I hope we see today about who God is. First of all, in this account, the wedding at Cana, this first miracle of Jesus, water into wine, that we would see that in Christ God is radically committed. Secondly, that God in Jesus Christ is wonderfully excessive. And thirdly, that we would see God in Jesus Christ in this miracle, that God is lovingly possessive. Radically committed, wonderfully excessive, lovingly possessive. Let's dig in and see what this all means. First of all, that God is radically committed. And we see that in the location that was chosen for this very first miraculous sign. The setting of this first miracle. It is no accident. No, it is indeed part of God's sovereign plan in the ministry of Christ that this would take place at a wedding. And there is a bride there, and there is a groom, and now there's a wedding celebration. And this connects us To all of the imagery throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and in the growing at this time, New Testament, this wonderful metaphor that God has been using to describe his relationship with his people, with us, with you. The metaphor of a wedding, the metaphor of a marriage, of a husband and a wife, of a groom and his bride. We saw that in our first reading, didn't we? Isaiah chapter 62, these wonderful, wonderful words. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you with all of your sin, with all of your shame, with all the things you've done just this past week, all the things known only to you oh, but not known only to you God knows it all and despite knowing the worst about you, he rejoices over you the way that a groom rejoices over his bride and I've told you lots of times about my wedding day and I didn't see Leah and I didn't see the dress until that day and the doors of the church were opened and there she was and her beautiful dress walking down the aisle and I had my Kleenex in my pocket the tears welling up in my eyes I'm an emotional guy and there I am and I'm dabbing the tears away and my heart is full and I'm so excited and I'm just rejoicing over this beautiful wonderful bride that I have and to think that God actually to some degree feels that way about me about us but it's not just the the emotion, the passion, the love, and the rejoicing that this metaphor conveys to us, but it's what a, not just a wedding, but what a marriage is, what a marriage should be. It's a covenant. It's a commitment. And maybe... You're familiar with the story, maybe not, the story of the Old Testament prophet Hosea. Hosea was a prophet who lived during the 8th century BC, he was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. And God had come to his prophet Hosea and he gave him a command. He says, Hosea, I want you to marry this particular woman. I want you to marry this woman. Her name was Gomer. Not a particularly popular name anymore for a young lady, Gomer. But God says, I want you to marry this woman. By the way, she is extraordinarily unfaithful. And she's going to be unfaithful. And I'll say it this way, she was unfaithful for financial gain, okay? So Hosea marries Gomer, and they have children together, and his wife eventually leaves him. And she sells herself for some money. And Hosea goes out into the streets of the town, of the city, and he's searching for his wife, he's searching for his bride, and he finds her, and he pays the price, he pays the money, and he takes her in his arms, takes her back home, and he loves her. And then she's unfaithful again, she does it again, she goes out and leaves him. And Hosea goes out into the streets, Finally, he finds his wife, he pays the price. He puts his arm around her, he brings her back home, and he loves her as his beloved wife, and she does it again. She does it again, and again. And he continues to find her to pay the price and to bring her back. What is God? Doing? Hosea. Why is God having one of His prophets do this? It's what we would call an enacted parable. We know about parables. Jesus taught in parables. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, conveying a deeper spiritual reality. Jesus taught in parables. An enacted parable is when you're actually living out in your real life that parable. Why is God doing this? Because he so is wanting to drive home in this visceral way his relationship with us, his radical commitment to us, to you. We are the unfaithful one. And we leave him and we forsake him and we chase after all sorts of things. Oh, we want acclaim or success or comfort or this house or these people to like us or whatever it is, fill in the blank, and we turn and we leave him again and again, and he comes after us again and again, and he, God, radically committed to you, to his promises, he has paid the price. Did you notice Jesus here, going back to John chapter 2, Although this was part of God's plan, it wasn't, this was perfectly, this is not an accident that this happened at the wedding at Cana, and yet Jesus is disturbed when this happens. His mom comes to him, his mother says, hey, they've ran out of wine, and he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He is greatly disturbed My hour has not yet come. Anytime he speaks of his hour, that's speaking about his suffering and his death. And Jesus here is already, it's almost like a mini Garden of Gethsemane moment where he is disturbed by this because he knows once he performs this miracle in the public way at this wedding here at Cana, he knows this is his first step towards his bitter suffering and death. And surrounded by the celebration and the party of this wedding and the joy, and they're all doing whatever the first century equivalent of the YMC. CA and a conga line and everyone is rejoicing around Jesus and Jesus surrounded by the happiness and the celebration is already beginning his suffering so that even now we who live surrounded by suffering can know even now at least in part the joy and the blessing to come he's paid the price because he is radically committed to his bride and that's the first thing that we see here. But secondly, not just radically committed, but he is wonderfully excessive, over the top. He does so much more than we can possibly imagine. We see that here in the miracle itself. <clears throat> it says, verse six, there were six, six stone water jars there. They each were holding 20 or 30 gallons, six times 30 is 180. That's 180 gallons of water that he turns into 180 gallons of wine. I love the little detail that John puts here. It says, and they filled them up to the brim. 180 gallons of Of water, 180 gallons of wine, that is somewhere around 900 to 1,000 bottles of wine. Does that seem a little bit excessive to you? Here at the end of the wedding celebration, it's not like they even needed it at this point. But he's excessive not just in the quantity, but the quality. Verse nine, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he didn't know where it came from, the servants knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first when the people have drunk freely and then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. I have to imagine that is the understatement of of all history, good wine. This was the best wine in the history of humanity. And again, what is Jesus' first miracle? What... 900 bottles of what what is he do of unusually good wine he's showing us who he is he's showing us why he has come wine throughout the scriptures is symbolic of joy and it's symbolic of the blessings of God and Jesus here is saying you want to know who I am and what I'm about I'm the one who has come to bring blessing and joy in excessive amounts I've come to make my blessings flow far as the curse is found. I am the one who's come to bring joy to the world. And what we have here is just a picture of eternal life at this wedding feast with blessing and joy beyond our imagination in excess. Again, we saw that in Revelation 19, our other reading, where it says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Who's the multitude? Well, that's us. That's the church, all tribes and all nations. there with Jesus. And it was like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. It is a celebration. This is the feast of victory for our God. This is the fiesta. This is the party, the celebration of victory that goes on forevermore. And it says, verse nine, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We can't even begin to imagine what it's like to be with Jesus and to have this blessing and this joy. And let me make this point of application. Almost everyone here in the room today, unless you're just too young, we've all lost someone. We've lost a mom, a dad, a husband, a wife, a brother, a sister, and uncle, grandmas, grandpas, a child. And what Jesus is showing us in this miracle and what John is showing us here in Revelation. If you somehow had the ability to make your way to your loved one there at the marriage feast of the Lamb, there with Jesus and all the joy that they're surrounded and all the... Somehow you could make your way to be with them and that you could actually bring them back with you. They would not come. And if you somehow were able to be there and to see what they are experiencing, being with Jesus Christ and the joy that they have, you wouldn't ask them to come. In this, we see a God who is radically committed and wonderfully excessive all the joy. And then finally, In Christ, we see a God who's lovingly possessive. There's something that he really, really wants. Quickly here as we wrap up. Six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. These stone jars were jars that were set aside. This was water that was not drinking water. This was water that was used for, quote, the Jewish rites of purification. Now, what's that? Well, it's part of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. You know, there was dietary codes. You can eat this and you can't eat this. And there were various holy days and festivals and feasts they were supposed to be a part of and various ritual washings for all sorts of things. Binding God's people together so that the Messiah one day would come. By this time in history, the Pharisees, a lot of this ceremonial law had simply become an outward form of compliance, sort of an empty religious ritual. It's a quid pro quo. It's religion. It's God, okay, I'll do these things and I'll wash in this way and do all the stuff I'm supposed to do. I'll be a good boy and a good girl if you'll bring some blessing into my life. That's what it had become. It's not an accident that Jesus is taking the water that was set aside for these empty and outward religious rituals, this religious compliance, and he turns it into wine to be taken inwardly, to change the heart He's lovingly possessive. What is it that he wants? He doesn't want empty, outward religious compliance, quid pro quo, hey Jesus, I'll pray to you, I'll turn to you, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, I need a lot of stuff in my life, help me hang on to these false gods and idols. No, what does he want? What is he possesses of? He wants you. He wants your heart. Have you ever opened up your heart Jesus yes Jesus I want you in my life because in Jesus we see a God who is so committed who is so jealous for you who loves you that he would suffer and die so that you could be his forever, a God in Christ who wants to make his blessings flow and the joy forevermore the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and it manifested his glory, do you see who God is it says his disciples and I pray that for all of us we would Believe in him. To Christ alone be all the glory. Amen.